following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. If you're still learning how to navigate your Bible, uh, Hebrews is right before James. It's going to be towards the back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we have plenty and we'd really like to give you one. So let us know that. Those are in the Connect Center right through those doors. So last week, uh, we studied verses 1 through 8. And uh, that includes some intense warning about falling away. And so we discussed how that can be understood at length uh, when, when we were together last time. And so if you missed that, we would encourage you to uh, hit YouTube or the podcast and, and catch up. Because uh, particularly as we're moving through books of the Bible, you know, this is all one letter. It all ties together. And uh, it's, it's important that we kind of stay up on, on what's happening as we move through the book together. So in verses 9 through 20, the author pivots from stark warning to stout encouragement. And and just about anybody, regardless of their grasp of the big story of Scripture, could glean some encouragement from the verses that we're going to be reading today. But I would say, as is always the case, a more robust understanding of the biblical narrative will help us savor the richness of these truths all the more. I do also want to say that today is is not just for those who have a felt need of encouragement, though it is absolutely for you. These verses contain very important truths for all of us about the source and the steadfast nature of the encouragement that God has made available to us through Christ and his gospel. And so there's application for everyone today, regardless of how you felt when you came in. But I think it might be helpful before we read it, just take a moment and and think about our mindset and and our heart posture coming into today. And and just in case anyone's starting to panic, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, so don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. But I want you to try to assess yourself right now and think about this. Ask yourself the question, did you come into this gathering today knowing that you needed encouragement? Or would you not have listed that as something you need right now? How, how did you come in? Because that, that will affect to some degree how you approach these scriptures and how these scriptures deal with you. My confidence is that as he always does, God is going to meet each and every one of us where we are by the power of his spirit and his word this morning. He always does that. Amen. Someone else knows about that, don't they? Come on. Okay, so as I said, Hebrews 6, we're looking at verses 9 through 20 together. Now remember, big intense warning, here's the pivot. But, beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise." For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Praise God for his word. You guys 
realize we have a lot of work to do now, right? Now that we read those, you know what's up? Okay, let's get after it, okay? So we're going to start back at verse 9. We're going to work our way through this. Just one thing I think is worth noting. It seems that in the author's mind, the warning that we read last week was about people other than the recipients of the letter, okay? So he's, he's talking about a danger, but he doesn't necessarily think this group of believers that he's writing to are in imminent threat of that danger. Also, in verse 9, we see this, uh, this, this phrase, uh, we're con- convinced of better things, better things concerning you, and then maybe even dials in more specific, and things that accompany salvation, things that accompany, so we don't think this warning over that we just talked about applies to you, we, we think better things about you, and to, to give shape to that, things that accompany salvation. Okay, so that's an interesting phrase, and some, it should probably elicit in us a question, or what are things that accompany salvation? What are those? Uh, I'm glad you asked. So verse 10 answers it for us, at least gives us the one thing that this author thought worth mentioning when talking about things that accompany salvation, which I think is very interesting, and we're going to unpack that as we keep going here. So things that accompany salvation... Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Okay? So are we following the the track here? This warning, I don't think it's necessarily about you convinced of better things about you, things that accompany salvation. What what accompanies salvation? What is God not going to forget? that you've ministered, you have ministered, and are still ministering to the saints. The one thing this author sees fit to mention when he says the phrase, things that accompany salvation, is ministering to the saints, serving the people of God. Very interesting. I'm going to ask you to put a pin in that, because as we move through this, I think the, the thought continues, though it's, it's not as clear necessarily, but once, once we unpack it all, uh, there's, there's some real beauty here, and there's some real clear applicable truth I think is sometimes missed in this set of verses. So we're going to get to that. So that brings us to verse 11 and 12, all right? So put a pin in having ministered to the saints, things that accompany salvation, that being ministering to the saints. We're going to come back to that because I think the author does, even though it's not clear. So verses 11 and 12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so another interesting phrase. Same diligence as those. Okay, you might, okay who's the those? Well, you got to keep reading. It's, he's going to tell us. He's going to bust into a, uh, an analogy here, looking back at the life in, of Abraham and God's dealings with him. Same diligence, and, and then there's two key words here, faith, that through faith and patience inherit the promise. Faith and patience. And so I, I think oftentimes uh, we have faith or patience, but it's very hard to have faith and patience. Almost to some degree, depending on how you're wired, you're probably going to be more likely to have either faith or patience. Now, some people may have none, and you're in real trouble of being sluggish, okay? So hopefully, hopefully today will be a blessing to you, and you'll be encouraged to jump in at all here. But for many of us, we're going to be probably predisposed to being strong in one and not the other, to have faith or patience. But here we see, he's talking about diligence, right? And we know the book of Hebrews is so rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, and and we know the author knew that his readers were, he doesn't lay out a big, long story, which I'm about to do. Well, not real big and long. Don't check out on me, but it'll be concise. But he doesn't have to explain, he doesn't have to go into a history lesson about Abraham. He's writing to people that understand the Hebrew scriptures. He just can, he's assuming they already know the stories. They know the Pentateuch, right? So, but what, what we see here is, and he's gonna, so he's going to reference Abraham specifically, and it was faith and patience together. And so if we, if we, but let's pull those apart for a minute and think about what happens. Think about the, this sluggishness that can happen in our walk with the Lord and, and, and walking out our faith. 
if we have faith or patience. Let's think about if we're sluggish because of a, a lack of faith. What, what could that look like? Well, patience without faith can easily become apathy. Patience without faith can easily become apathy. So what does that look like? That looks like um, I, at one time, I hear the promises of God. I see the, the, what, what he has said he is, he is willing to do and has promised to do, that he's held himself to an oath by the greatness of his own name, the only one in the whole universe that when asked, who are you, he can say, I am, and the discussion's over, right? When that one says, I'm going to do this, by my name, I'm telling you I'm going to do this, that's, that's worth getting excited about. That is something that should conjure in us faith. If you're going to put faith in anything, put faith in him and in that. In him and in what comes out of his, what he speaks is going to be true because of who he is, right? So, but if you have, if you have a, a bunch of patience and, and no faith, there's, there could be, there can be a, a lack of, of excitement and, and, and and holding on to those things that God has said. Some people are, are very patient. Some people are very kind of go with the flow. Some people, you know, yeah, maybe they realize that things around them aren't, aren't great, or maybe there's, there's things around them that don't seem to reflect that, that God's promises are, are working out in their day-to-day life, but they're, they're just kind of defeatist. They're just kind of uh, fatalist, right? They're just, ah, well, you know, it's not, who, who am I and what am I going to do about it, right? I just... Maybe they're real patient, but they're just, they're just kind of like a dead fish floating down the river, right? And that's, that's what you, you, so there's a sluggishness that can come. And, and so you may, you know, I don't know if I'll ever say this to you again, but you can be too patient if your patience is not counterbalanced with faith. And really it's not, the issue is not being too patient. It's patience morphing into apathy, uh, where we're just not, we're not even bothered by believing God. And sometimes that happens by a series of discouragements. I can't tell you how many people I've met that just have, whether they've, in the front of their mind or, or it's a subconscious thing, they've just, they've tried to climb the, the ladder out of whatever hole they're in so many times that, and fallen back to the bottom. They've just gotten tired of, of the fall. They're, they're tired of the pain of falling off. And so they just lay there. And, and you could over-spiritualize that position and say, oh, well, I'm just trusting in God's sovereignty and I'm just, just being patient on the Lord. But we need faith and patience to endure. Now, on the other side, <clears throat> faith without patience can very easily lead to discouragement. Because there are some people that that, that tendency towards apathy is not their issue. They are very excited about the promises of God, and they are, they are very excited about all of the good, awesome potential that can come from a God that is sovereign and good and powerful, and he's made these promises, and I, I see what he said, and I'm, I'm holding on to it, and, and, and well, why wouldn't God do it fast? If he's going to do it, why wouldn't he do it fast? So faith without patience can oftentimes lead to discouragement. Oftentimes, we, either knowingly or unknowingly, create timelines in our mind, and we put, we put this backstop on how much time God has to prove himself faithful. Well, friends, our God deals in eternal timelines, so you got to chill out. You need some patience, because sometimes he'll exceed your expectations in terms of time. Sometimes the very thing he's going to do for your good is grind up all your expectations and let them blow away in the wind. Because he loves you. I see some smiles out there. Maybe some of you have experienced or you've read about something like this happening in your life before. Is that what I'm gleaning from your facial expressions? Yes. Amen. So some of you know what it looks like to have faith without patience. We need faith and patience. I don't know how often it's, it's unique that the, the writer of Hebrews puts those together in this way. I think it's really helpful for us to think about that. Daily life, man, trying to navigate a walk with the Lord in a faithful way. To understand how those two things interplay is super important. So the question may come, okay, all right, faith and patience. All right, I feel like you made a fairly good case for that. All right, I'll buy that. But, all right, what, so, okay, in what do I place my faith? And how long do I need patience? Those would be two great questions that I'm assuming some of you are asking. So, well done. Uh, the author also anticipated your question. So let's move to verses 14 through 18 and see 
if we can find an answer to those. So where or what do I place my faith in and how long do I need patience? So starting in verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Again, you don't even have to understand Abraham's story just to hear this simple fact that it's impossible for God to lie. There's encouragement just to grab right out of that, because you don't, you don't know anybody else like that. There's nobody else you're ever going to encounter that it's impossible for them to lie. But God is so bound by the very holiness and perfection of his character that you can settle on this. God isn't lying. He can't do it. It'd be a violation of the very core of who and what he is, a holy and perfect and good God. And so that's helpful because some of you maybe have wondered sometimes, is God going to do what he said? Yes, every time, always, because he can't do otherwise. It's a good truth to meditate on. That can be encouraging in the midst of times of difficulty. And so we're looking for answers to the questions, where do I place my faith and what do I place my faith? How long do I need patience? Well, if you look at verses 14 through 18, I think this is not necessarily a shocker. We put our faith in God. We put our faith in God himself. We put our faith in his holiness, his goodness and power, his promises, and unchanging purpose. Those are the two unchangeable things that we see mentioned here that God can't lie about. His promises and his unchanging purpose. In him, right? When he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. When he, when he starts out to accomplish something, he's not going to realize halfway through, oh, I went the wrong way. Or, oh, this isn't that good of a plan, right? I've been in the Midwest too long, right? Because I'm, I'm putting ope in the mouth of God. Probably not, so sorry about that, if that's sacrilegious. Um, he never says that in the scriptures, but, uh, well, I guess I'm saying that's not what he's going to say, so surely, no. He's not going to go, whoops, uh, we went the wrong way here. Let's bank left here, guys. We've got to change trajectory. No, because God is timeless, perfect, holy, because he's eternal, because he's sovereign, because his throne is above every other throne, because his vantage point is like no other. When he sets out towards a purpose, it's not changing. You don't have to worry about some of the things you have to worry about with your plans <laughs> or the plans of others. Oh man, well, what if, this, what if this doesn't work out? That's not on the table of options with God, okay? So there's encouragement here. There is, there is relief from many of the anxieties that, because sometimes we project onto God our own characteristics or our own potential pitfalls, and, and, and those are not there. Uh, sometimes we let worries that, that have no place when we're dealing with a, a God who makes promises like he makes and has purposes like he has and the power to, to make it all happen. Um, and so there's, there's relief here. And, and I, I hope that you are feeling that. So the other question we're talking about is how long do we need patience? Okay, so in order to really... This, this line here, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you, this mention of Abraham. Okay, real quick, if you're not familiar with Abraham, uh, basically starting around Genesis 12, we begin to see God's interaction with this man named Abram. God comes to him, ends up changing his name to Abraham. Abram is this guy that lives out in the desert in a little clan. God says, I want you to get up and start moving, and, and as you... Do, Obey me in faith, I'll tell you where you're going. So he does that, and then God comes to him and, and makes this promise that's shocking. He's around 75 years old, and God comes and tells him uh, this right here. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you. And you may think, okay, well, well, great. Well, the reason that's striking is because at 75 years old, Abraham had no descendants. When God started to come to him and talk about blessing him, his answer back was, God, how is that possible? I have no children. I have no son. Eleazar, my servant, is going to have to be the one that, that I give everything to. I, I don't have, because Sarah was barren, right? And so the promise of God was, all right, old feller rolling around the desert with his old wife, I'm going to give you a progeny, right? I'm going to give you 
a child, at least one, and, and you're going to have offspring. I'm going to multiply you. That's a pretty wild promise. Can you imagine being 75 years old, already having gone through all the emotional pain and difficulty of, of never being able to have a child, particularly in that time? I mean, that's hard today. But in a time where basically your, your whole lineage and, and the, your memory and all of that, it, it depended on having children being passed down from generation to generation. It was, it was a much bigger deal then even than it is now. So already you've, you've done all that mourning and then God shows up. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply. And he goes further. He says, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham's still standing there with no kid. Okay, so this is, this is the context in which God comes to him. And, this, and then we understand something about the question, how long do I need patience, when we see Abraham was 75 years old, when God first popped up, started talking about, I'm going to bless you and multiply you, and we're going to do some wild stuff together, if you trust me, right? It's, he's about 100 years old, when Isaac, his son, is finally born, the son of promise. So some quick mental math gives you 25 years. Okay? I know you don't like that answer. I don't want to wait for anything for 25 years. Let's also say this, though. That's just an example. It's not a hard line. Because some may think, okay, well, this guy's talking about patience and faith together. He used the example of Abraham. Abraham waited 25 years for his, the promise God made him to come true. So if I wait 25 years, boy, 25 years in one day, then I'm giving up. That's the line. That's how far I'll go. That's not what that is, is meant for, okay? It's, it's an example. It, it tells us that, man, sometimes you may be waiting longer than you'd like. And I'm going to tell you something else. Because we have an eternal view, man, some of the promises that God has made, they're, they're going to be realized in eternity. That's where some of them are, are, are we're actually going to be able to, to cash that in. So let's also just say that. But just to make sure we don't think 25 years is some significant number in terms of patience, uh, Noah built a boat for 75 years before the flood ever showed up that God told him was coming. This is getting worse, not better, isn't it? I thought you said these were encouraging verses. Well, it is. Think about this. God patiently waited for the exact right time to send Jesus. For roughly 4,000 years after telling Adam and Eve there was a seed that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. 4,000 years. That's a long time. You can't even barely conceive of that amount of time. <laughs> okay, That's long. So God has had to exercise patience even in the fulfilling, fulfilling of his promises. We see throughout the scriptures his desire is for the, the reality of these promises to come because what, what they all center around is the problem of sin being solved and relationship being restored between us and him. This is God's big project. Us. I don't know why he picked us. I, you know, whew, buddy. But he did. He set his love upon us. And, and anytime you're feeling frustrated with how patient you're having to be, waiting on a promise of God to be fulfilled in your life, just remember there was 4,000 years between Genesis 3 and Jesus popping up in Bethlehem. Okay? God has also, it's not like God doesn't understand. <laughs> okay? But there's also, there, was, there are so many reasons I don't have time to get into that roughly 2,000 years ago was the exact right time for King Jesus to come as was promised. Okay. <clears throat> Having faith and patience can be really hard. I think we, it's, and it's okay for us to be honest about that, but it is also wise to have our feelings anchored by truth. We see that towards the end of this passage. It talks about an anchor for our soul. And I want to give you an example, maybe the best example in the scriptures that I'm aware of. And if you, if you peruse the Psalms, maybe you'll find a better one. This, this is just for me. I think, is, is probably the, the clearest example of this principle I'm trying to give you. It's okay for us to acknowledge how difficult it can be to operate with faith and patience. It's okay even to talk to the Lord about it. But we have to have an anchor for our soul. Let me give you an example of what that can look like. This is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? These are real feelings. Somebody's feeling. How long... Am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. 
Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. That's a lot of raw honesty. There's a pivot. But, this is verse 5 of Psalm 13, but all the, I feel all that right now. Lord, this is really what it looks like to me, but I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me. The key here is not to deny that walking in faith and patience is hard. It's not to pretend like it's not a struggle. We can be honest with the Lord about the reality of what it means to walk this way. But also there has to be an anchor for the soul, a remembrance that he has looked after me. Our minds and hearts have to be full of all of the times, not only that through the scriptures we've seen God's faithfulness poured forth, but when he's been faithful to us. The times in your life where you know God has been good and been faithful to his promises. I've trusted in your faithfulness. The, the situation's hard. I don't see even how we could get to the fulfillment of your promises in this situation, Lord. I don't see it, but what I can trust in is your faithfulness. Because I, like the writer of Hebrews, can think back to Abraham and God popping up to him at 75 years old with a barren wife and saying, I'm going to bless you and multiply you and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed by your offspring. I can think about the way God dealt with the fathers of the faith. That's, that's a big point of this whole book. We're going to get to Hebrews 11, man. That's, that's the hall of faith. That's one of the crescendos of this book. It's like, man, when you're discouraged, when your sight is too narrow, when you've let yourself get too focused on all the negative and all the things that it looks like God isn't doing, pan out, pan out to the big story because it's our story. Pan out and remember all the places God said wild things and then did it all the places God did things that seemed absolutely impossible to do. Pan out, be encouraged. Widen your vision. Fill your heart and mind with God's faithfulness, not only from the scriptures, but also from your own life. From the, that's, that's part of what being connected to other believers is for. Are you aware of, are you aware of things in other people's life right now that, that shows unequivocally that God is faithful? Do you have relationships in your life right now where you're watching other people go through difficult things and seeing God be good to them? Surely some of you also know of people's situations that it, it looks very hard and very difficult. And you may have to lend them some of this trust in God's faithfulness when it doesn't look like this is going to come out the way I want it to come out. I mean, part of the big problem here is letting go of the idea that it's all about it coming out the way I want it to come out and being able to lean back into a trust in, in God's faithfulness and in God's ability to actually do what is best for us, which oftentimes won't look like exactly what I think. Hmm. Just thought I'd let you sit with that for a second because that's a fun truth. You may not feel encouraged by that right off the rip, but boy, that's really encouraging. There's a lot of freedom in that. To let go of this problem we have of, of trying to tell God what the plan should be, that's a lot of pressure. Oh, you didn't realize you do that? <laughs> Absolutely, we do that. And maybe it doesn't come in the form of a, a prayer that we actually would come to God and say, hey God, all right, here's, here's what I think is going to happen. But it is sometimes timelines and exact specific outcomes that supersede what God has actually promised. But, but we think because I really desire it or because I really want it, then this has to be what God has to do. And I'd like it, I'd like it closer to now than later as well. Man, um, there's a whole lot of examples in Scripture. Got a whole lot of examples in my life of things I thought were really good ideas. And uh, God knew better to the praise of his name. Amen. Uh, there is also encouragement for those who haven't walked in faith and patience with diligence because the author pivots to Abraham. Um, my question is, right, because here's, what does he say? Back, back to verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The same diligence is who? He's going to use the example of Abraham. He gets very specific. 
When God made the promise to Abraham, verse 13, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And then says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Okay, so Genesis 12-ish, we see Abraham, the story starts to unfold. God ends up coming to him and saying, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. You're going to have a child. Okay, all right. And we got, then we got 25 years in between. Those of you that know the story of, of Abraham, does anybody remember a, a slight snafu somewhere in that 25 years uh, around maybe something you wouldn't call just waiting in faith and patience for the fulfillment of God's promise? That snafu had a name. His name was Ishmael. It started with Sarah becoming discouraged and saying, Abraham, I want you to take my servant. She can give us a child. And so that happens. Ishmael is born. We see the incredible mercy and grace of God and the fact that even, uh, even though that was a direct violation of, of what God said was going to happen and it was man trying to get in there and make something happen, God, it seems like maybe you're busy or unable to do what you said, so I'm going to help. Uh, never a good idea. Anybody other than me... You know, you, you can relate to Abraham. You've had some Ishmaels in your own life. You've, you've got in there, and I'm going to help God get this thing done, right? Yep, I have. I guess none of you have. You guys are all faith and patience, just juggernauts, right? So you've never, never jumped in there and tried to juice the process a little bit and get it moving. That's fine. Man, I didn't. I should have one of you guys preach this. You guys are doing really good. Uh, most all of us, <laughs> and either have dissolved into a puddle of discouragement or uh, gotten in there and tried to make something happen on our own. Um, almost all of us, if we thought about it, have, have experienced that. So the point here is, um, this, he's, he's calling us to, don't, don't get sluggish as a, re, as a result of a lack of faith and patience. Be diligent to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Like who? Like Abraham. The big question, here's what I'm, I'm trying to give you an encouragement here, all right? So smile and take it. Abraham... Maybe if you really know the story, you wouldn't have said, Abraham did it with faith and patience. Because like you know about Hagar and Ishmael, and that doesn't look like faith and patience. That looks like trying to get in here and make something happen, right? But God is merciful and patient and faithful. God even dealt mercifully with Ishmael and Hagar, right? And it, when, when Abraham, here's, here's something else. When, so when Abraham capitulated to that whole idea, and here, now we have Ishmael, did God come down and say, well, tisk tisk tisk, you've messed up the plan. Look what you did, you big idiot. <laughs> now we got Ishmael, now we can't get to Isaac. Is that what happened? No, because God knew Ishmael was coming when he told him Isaac was coming, right? You didn't surprise God with your bumble. Is anybody understanding why this is encouraging? Maybe none of you have bumbled before. Maybe really none of you have any Ishmaels, or maybe none of you really are discouraged, and this is the biggest group of super-Christians on planet Earth. Maybe that's what's going on, or maybe it's really important for us to remember, when I screw up in the faith and patience department, I'm not going to knock God off track or make him somehow now impotent or unable to do what he said he would do. That's really helpful for me. Again, that takes some big pressure off my shoulders. Again, that takes the, the, the foolish pressure I sometimes let get on my shoulders, thinking that I'm the sovereign one sitting on a throne that has to make sure everything goes the way it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Yes. I guess I could have put some more sugar in that medicine, but I, I mean, I don't know. Just take it. It's good for you. That's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. <clears throat> and, and, but here's something else we need to consider, okay? He, he drills down to this specific example to help us understand what, what this diligence is that he's talking about, what it looks like to walk in faith and patience, okay? Um, and, and he gets down into Abraham and all of that. But we, we need to know, we need to be able to pan out and understand this promise to Abraham, it wasn't just about blessing two old folks with a baby, all right? It, and that's what's wild about how God does things. Like, God loved Abraham and Sarah. God did care about the pain and, and that they had experienced and the joy that would come out of Isaac being given to them. He absolutely cared about that, but it wasn't just about that. 
And that's something else I need you to realize about your life and realize about you walking things out with faith and patience and diligence, right? God does care about the specifics of your situation. He cares about the pain that you've experienced and the joy that will come as his promises are fulfilled for you. He cares about you, but it never just affects you. We're all tied together here. Our lives intersect. I mean, unless you've really just somehow figured out a full-on hermit situation, right? That when you leave here, you run to a cave and interact with nobody ever, right? And if you're doing that, stop, okay? We're going to get to that in a minute. But the reality is our, our, our lives are tied together. And, and the, the, your story and my story and other people's stories, they, they intersect in these ways. God can see all of that. And so he knows that it's, it's never just about even what... It ups the ante on us caring about faith and patience. It's, it's not just about making sure I get my blessings... It's also about the fact that I've been swept up into this grand redemptive narrative of God, that because I'm a part of the people of God through faith in Christ, that what I do and don't do matters, that I'm supposed to be a part of, do you understand this thing is still unfolding? Like we look at the Hebrew scriptures, it's like sometimes like we, we get to Jesus like, oh cool, mission accomplished, God did what he said. No, no, no. Jesus died and rose and then he started the church. <laughs> He said, this is the final phase to the whole plan that started all the way back before the foundations of the earth, but that we got our first peek at in Genesis 3, that a seed was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. We're still out here crushing serpent head. You understand that? That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're still out here supposed to be letting people know that there's a love greater than they've ever experienced, that there's a God that desires to be in relationship with them, and he's made it possible, even though they are broken and riddled with sin and all that comes as a result of that. This, this thing's still going. So the promise wasn't just about blessing two old folks with a baby. He, he said things, so he said, I will multiply you, I will bless you. He said, your, your children, go outside, look up. Look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? No, that's how many, that's what I'm talking about. Just to try to give you a frame of reference here, Abe, here's, this is what I'm doing, man. From you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this. <laughs> and here's the question we need to answer today. The, the, the author's already given his answer, but you need to answer it. You need to ask hard questions of these realities and, and come up with an answer because it's going to affect how you move forward. Was God faithful? When God told Abraham, when God grabbed this dude who was nobody to anybody and said, if you trust me, I'm going to change the world with, with your offspring. Was God faithful? Did he do it? I, I want to I contend that he did. Let me, let me lean on Paul's understanding of how this went from Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness, therefore recognize that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right? So God did it. God did it a couple different ways. One, yes, God did give him Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and, and then they were in Egypt, and then there's millions of them out in the wilderness, and now there's... So there, there is a, a large physical descendancy of Abraham that is now a whole people. Yes? But God's, God's vision was always bigger than even just the physical lineage and, and, and the, the restrictions of that. He was, he was always going to spill the banks of that river, because it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, because the, the deal with Isaac wasn't even necessarily just about Isaac. It was about Isaac and then Jacob and then the sons and the tribes. And then it was going to come all the way down to Jesus. And that was the seed. Paul makes that argument. It wasn't about seeds so much as the seed that was going to come from Abraham. That ultimately, out of Abraham's loins, about you know, another several thousand years later, we have Jesus born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David, of the lineage of Abraham. God's promise fulfilled. And what Jesus then does is makes it possible for people to come to God by faith, to go from rebels to become sons and daughters. We become sons of Abraham and sons of God by what? By faith. The scripture foreseeing, still in Galatians, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's me. I don't think Abraham's my great, 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 great granddaddy, but I'm in, baby. And I'm thankful. Maybe. I could have some Hebrew in me, I don't know, but just based on 
general understandings of genetics, probably not, okay? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You know, so my answer is yes, God was faithful to his promise. Well, how do you, how do you know? Look around. There's a, there's a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of places gathered together today, united by one thing. It's faith in Christ. And we are the sons and daughters of God. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. God did exactly what... And that's wild. That is, that's wilder than you think it is. Because you, you're not reacting like you should. So I'm just telling you right now. And, and some, so, some, cause I th- so this is applicable to a question that I, I often hear. Some may wonder why Jesus has not returned. Because I think especially people wonder that with how much it seems like things are getting worse in many respects. And, and people are like, man, what is, what is he waiting on? It doesn't seem like we're, get, we're heading in the right direction in a lot of ways, right? And that's, that's people's perception of it. So, I, I mean, I'm going to give you an example of... of why I see this scripture playing out, but here, that God has answered that through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, God is not slow, as some count slowness. He is patient, willing that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So the, the, the answer is, God's not slow. God's not forgot about what was going on down here. You know, He's patient. Patient, willing that none should perish. So we see the desire of God in that, okay? Now you might say, all right, well, I hear about his desire, but are, are, we, are we moving backwards or forwards? Because I'm, I'm sure if you guys pay any attention to culture broadly, numbers specifically around people that, that belong to Jesus or claim to follow Jesus, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that in Europe and here in the United States and in other places, it seems like the numbers are going down, not up. It seems like we're losing ground on this grand goal of God and the reason for which he's being patient. But I think we need to keep a couple things in mind about what God's doing. In the whole world, there were roughly 600 million Christians in 1910. Now, there's 2.1 billion people that would say they follow Jesus. Now, you can make arguments for are, are there some within, within those bounds that would say that and aren't really? Pr- probably you could make that argument, and, and I, I wouldn't disagree really, but I just would caution you that if your orientation when you hear that is that, that there's 2.1 billion people that follow Jesus, if, you're, if your first thought and kind of your instinct is go, oh, well, I'm sure a bunch of those people aren't really Christians. Like if, you're, if, if your attitude is to like be more about um, building walls based on like little doctrinal neat nick things that you want to have this like narrowest path possible. Like the path's already narrow. There's already only one way. It's through Jesus. There's already only one way to come to God. It's by knowing that you're a sinner and knowing that Jesus is the only one that can save you. Like that's narrow enough, right? So you don't need to build additional walls around your theological preferences and try to hold people out of this. I'm I'm hoping it's 2.1 billion. I'm hoping it's more. And some of the data's wrong right? Because there's roughly 7 billion people in the world. So, But my big point, like, why didn't God come? Things, you know, <laughs> lots of bad things have happened between 1910 and 2022. Yes? Lots of evil in the world. But also, the number of Christians in the world went from 600 million to 2.1 billion. Though percentages have decreased in Europe and the U.S., so percentage of people that would say they belong to Jesus, they've, they've decreased in, in probably more of the sphere of influence that we're aware of, there has been a 60-fold, 60-fold increase in Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. From 9 million, same time frame, from 9 million to 516 million people knowing and loving Jesus since 1910 on the African continent. In Asia, it's been a tenfold increase from 28 million to 285 million. I don't know what you, your hopes for eternity are. Maybe you're kind of a, an introvert and you're like, man, it'd be cool if it was like me, Jesus, and like a few other cool people that I like, but you know, not that many other people. You need to get healed of that, bro. Come on. 
I want as many people as possible there. I'm sure there's a little corner in eternity somewhere you can hide and recharge if you need to, okay? I'm sure that's there for you. But listen to me, man. We sh- there, should be a, there should be a passionate desire in the heart of every true Christ follower for there to be as many people as possible in eternity with him and with us. Billions, man, that's a lot of sons of Abraham. God was true to his promise. And it wasn't just made to Abraham. We inherit this promise by faith. And part of here's what I'm getting to, guys. The summary of all God's promises, I'm going to get into some stuff here that you're, you, you may not like, but you need to. <laughs> okay. Is that encouragement? I think so. I think it is. The summary promise of all God's promises is that he will have a great number of sons and daughters, and you can be one of them by faith in Jesus Christ. See, when you think about the promises of God, it's, you know, it'd be interesting to sit down and, and run yourself through an exercise. When I hear the phrase, the promises of God, what comes to mind first? For some of us, it, it probably has to do with some more specific things that would center around our desires. I don't know if all the time we think about the fact that basically all the promises of God are wrapped up in the big promise that was made to Abraham. The big promise is, mankind sinned, but I'm going to make a way that by faith, anybody can come and be a son and daughter, and we can spend eternity together. That's the promise of promises. All the other promises are about getting to that promise. That's the big show. Now, I, I, let's hold on. He has also promised to never leave us or forsake us. Amen. He has also promised to always do what is actually best for us. There are other promises. I'm just telling you, the summary promise is the promise to Abraham. The summary promise is the promise that we get to be a part of because Christ did everything he did, and we can come to him by faith. So he has promised to not leave us. He has promised to do what is actually best for us, but he has never promised to make all of our dreams come true. He has never promised even that our life would be easy. As a matter of fact, we are told over and over again, this life will always feel at least a little bit jacked up because this is not our home. That is actually also a part of God's love to us because if, if, this, if things on this plane of existence get too hunky-dory, we could get in, we could get, our love could be settled very much on the, the here and now when there should be in all of us the, the desire that Paul described, that to live is Christ but to die is gain. There should, be, there should be a pull in us towards eternity. And in, particularly in the West, and because of the level of comfort that most of us are able to uh, achieve here, we struggle with that. We struggle with there being a real, vibrant, day-to-day desire for what's next because we are in some ways able to insulate ourselves from the reality of how busted up this world really is. So it's no surprise to me that in sub-Saharan Africa, where food and water daily are, are an issue, that Christianity has exploded. Because the hope of an eternity with Christ is going to mean a whole lot to a person that that's their daily experience. Now, my great hope is you and I don't have to be reduced to that level of poverty to grab this truth and actually live it out. But if that's what it would take, this is a great question for you. This is not in the notes. What time is it? Ah. That's a great question. If you knew that's what it would take to be brought to that level of destitution for your heart to be right before God and your desire for him to be right, would you sign off on it? If that's what it would take for me to have my heart right before God, would I take whatever that means? It's a great question. Don't expect you to answer it right here, but I would like you to think about it. Maybe a little journaling around that. <clears throat> so our faith needs to be in God as he has actually revealed himself and patience in his promises as they actually are, not in a God we imagine or some idealized circumstance that we think he owes us. You could have said amen there, but chose not to, but I'm going to keep moving. Uh, now, you remember when I told you to put a pin in ministering to the saints? It's, 
So here's why. It's because of this big idea. Okay? God's big promise is to make a giant family of people, and anyone can be a part of this family if they will trust him by faith. Okay? So what does that mean? That means God's big promise is that the church will exist. And the number one example that came to this author's mind of things that accompany salvation, like I don't know what would come to your mind. You know, there's lots of things that we're always encouraging people to do, right? Prayer, very important. The Bible tells us elsewhere that would be something that accompanies salvation. Studying God's word, that would be something that accompanies salvation. Uh, Walking in love, that would be a really big deal of something that accompanies salvation. But I would say, that's, that plays out even in this, but for this author, when he talked about, I don't think that that warning I was talking about doesn't apply to you. Here's what I think about you. Better things, things that accompany salvation. What's an example of that? God, I know God's not forgotten that you have ministered to the saints and you are ministering to the saints. And do you see why the fact that God's big promise, the promise of all promises is one big family, which is the church. I know many of us have issues with the word church and what it means and what it's come to mean. I get that. I got all the sympathy in the world for that, right? If there's a, I've been hurt by the church club, I could be president, okay? Amen. So I get all that. But this is also still the reality that we need to deal with, (laughs) okay? God's big promise to the world is the church, and he's pulled it off. And one of the main things that this author sees as accompanying salvation is a vibrant participation in that, in ministering to the saints, serving the people of God. Another name, another name for the saints is the family of God. Another name for that is the church. Another name for that is the body of Christ. And so those who would say you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, they're missing the big point. Because the church is not a place you go to. It's a people you belong to. So being a Christian is being a part of the church. There's no way around it. How are you going to minister to the saints? Which is the primary example for the author of Hebrews of what it means to have things that accompany salvation. Okay? I know this is exciting. You're not acting quite as encouraged as I thought you might from this exhortation. Okay, but look. We're not, we're not out here in left field at all, okay? In John 13, Jesus said the number one way that the world would know that we belong to him is what? Our love one for another, right? I'm as excited about anybody as about the church getting out and interacting with those who do not yet know Jesus. I'm, you, you're not going to find anybody more excited about that. I'm very excited about that, okay? Yes and amen. But what Jesus said is that the way the world was going to know primarily that we belong to him is our love one for another. That actually one of the most powerful apologetics for the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the reality that this whole thing with Jesus is real and it changes people, one of the greatest apologetics for that is our love for one another. And to what degree we are willing to let our life be about serving one another. That whole idea of Jesus saying, the greatest, the way the world's going to know the most that you belong to me is your love one for the other, that, that it jibes very well with this idea of ministering to the saints, being the only example. It's the only example the author gives of things that accompany salvation. Like, I would expect a longer list, wouldn't you? If, you, if he's talking about, hey, I'm convinced, that, that warning I was talking about, I'm not talking about you, you guys have these signs that you're saved, is another way to say things that accompany salvation. Here, there, so let's talk about all the things that that could be. He says one thing. Ministering to the saints. So, if you've been discouraged or sluggish in your faith, maybe you've been serving the people of God faithfully, but you feel like God has forgotten or not noticed. That's addressed here as well. He hasn't. But let me also take a moment to say, man, every single one of you that pay a price, and there are, there are many of you, this, this idea of people not being willing to minister to the saints, to serve the people of God, you know, I, I, I like the author of Hebrews, if I'm talking to this church and just the, the knowledge I have of what people do here, I, it, it's not a giant risk here. But I know there are some. I know there are some that for various reasons, you, you served a long time and got tired. Or you just never saw the need for you to be involved that deeply. 
Or you've been hurt, and you're like, man, I don't want to get in that far. I, I get all of those things, but I want you to just deal with the reality when the author of Hebrews wanted to give a list of things that showed him these people were not the ones he was talking about that had fallen away. The one thing he talked about was serving the people of God, ministering to the saints. I didn't even ask you to do anything about it yet. I just asked you to think about it. It's okay. It's all right. We're going to be all right. We're almost done. So maybe you have felt forgotten or that God hasn't noticed. That's never going to happen. God sees absolutely everything that you've done and are doing. So don't let that get under your skin. Um, and I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to every person that sacrifices to, to love and serve people here. Uh, it, I'm, I'm very thankful. But I also know that sometimes if, if we don't have other people telling us that they see it, 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 that can lead to discouragement. And we can't really count on that. Because sometimes, man, the things, sometimes the ways you serve, nobody sees. But there's a real beauty to that. Trusting that the Lord does. It may not even be that. It, it may be that just in general, some have been swept into a, a consumeristic mindset of what it means to be a part of the church. And, and, and so that means you're being robbed of the joy that comes from doing what you were made to do and saved to do. It could just be as simple as that. But we're being encouraged today out of that. So what I'm telling you is things that accompany salvation, ministering to the saints, the, the promise that God's going to create a people for himself, and that's, that's his church, all, all of that ties together, and oftentimes it's not tied together when people work through this. So there you go. Try to contain your excitement. We've we got to keep moving. <clears throat> I also want to say real quickly, for those, there are those with limitations, there are those with physical limitations. There are those that can't leave the house. There, there are all kinds of situations where that's a reality. And so it's important to say that ministering to the saints can look a lot of different ways. It can look like serving. It can look like the people that right now today are teaching the children about Jesus downstairs. It can look like the people that came early today to make sure this place was ready for us to come in and to worship and study God's word together. It can look all kinds of ways, but it can also look um, as simple as picking up the phone and calling someone and, and speaking an encouraging word to them writing a note and sending it. There's all kinds of ways you can minister to the saints. If, if, if you can't speak, then write something. If you can't write, then say something. Like Whatever the limitation is, there, there, if, if you're alive, there is a way for you to be an encouragement to others. This is a principle that we've already seen early on in this. Early on in this, I challenge this church to take seriously the, the exhortation to encourage one another daily. I hope that's going well. I hope somebody has taken that mantle up and is really doing it and is, is, is receiving the blessing that comes from making, uh, widening your vision and making it about other people. Um, now, I understand that some of you thus far could be thinking, uh, is this encouraging? Like you're still waiting for the encouraging part. Um, I think there has been a lot, but I just want to say again, like here's, here's, what's here's why I'm encouraged. I hope you can be encouraged. God promised a nomad in the desert with a barren wife 4,000 years ago that he would bless all the families of the earth through his offspring, and he did it. That's encouraging, okay? That's encouraging. And you get to receive the blessing and be a part of helping others receive it simply by trusting him in faith. That is encouraging. We're right back to the the centrality of the gospel, and that is where we should draw our encouragement. Our encouragement shouldn't be so wavy on, on whether God is fulfilling this specific prayer request or not. Okay? Because I know that the Bible says God will give you the desires of your heart, but you've got to be real careful with that verse. Because before it says God will give you the desires of your heart, it says if you delight yourself in him. Delighting yourself in him is the prerequisite to God giving you the desires of your heart. And what happens when you delight yourself in him is your will begins to be molded to his. He becomes your greatest joy. He becomes your greatest desire. And so a lot of the things that you would end up praying for that ain't going to help you anyways, that stuff, as you, the more you delight in the Lord, the less you're going to pray dumb prayers. Did you say my prayers are dumb? No, I don't know, but maybe. <laughs> Maybe you're asking for stuff that wouldn't really be good for you, man, and you can't see it 
Can you be humble enough to acknowledge that that's a possibility? I hope so. Because it is. Because you're not God. Maybe that's the big truth to go out with today. Amen. Okay, verses 18 through 20, and then, and then we're done, all right? <clears throat> Let's, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Then he goes on to talk about this anchor of the soul. Then it's back to this idea of Jesus as this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, okay? And there's something here. I, because I've ran long, I almost... I, I'm thinking, I thought about leaving this, but I'm just, I'm going to do it faster because I can't not point this out to you. Okay. That idea of refuge in verse 18, you see that? Okay. Those who have taken refuge and then, and then he, and then he pivots back to this talk about Jesus as the high priest. That's a theme that keeps running through, right? And then next week we're going to, no, January, we're going to get into Melchizedek. All right. So that's going to be rad. This, what does all that mean? So, but when he talks about this refuge thing and then he's pivoting back to this high priest thing, have any of you ever read in Numbers 35 about the cities of refuge? Do you know what I'm talking about? Cities of refuge. Okay, if you don't, I'm going to explain it as quick as I possibly can. Basically, it was a place for people to run if they committed manslaughter. I know this is weird. But also part of like why our Western laws are the way they are, we have a distinction between like intentional murder and not intentional murder is because, ta-da, God said to. All right? But anyways, that's big discussion we don't have time for. All right. So if somebody unintentionally killed someone, right, there, there, was, there was these cities that were supposed to be given to the Levites, and, and, and they had certain boundaries, and if you, because what would typically happen, because remember, we're still in OT, baby, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you understand what I'm talking about? So if you kill somebody, the law was, we gonna kill you, all right? Which, I, look, thank God for grace, because, I mean, that old way used to make a lot of sense to me, <laughs> but Jesus is so awesome. So anyways, so... It, you had a place, so basically you killed somebody, right? You could run to one of these cities of refuge and you could stay there and the person, the person that would have a right to come and take blood vengeance on you for killing their family member or whatever, they could not touch you, okay? It, it was a place of refuge. If you went outside the city and that person was waiting for you, you you're, they got you. You had to stay in the city of refuge and you read this in, in numbers and you're like, this is weird. I don't really get it. Particularly when you get to this detail. You come to the, the, the whole end of the God laying this thing out about how cities of refuge are going to work and la da 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 He's like, okay, somebody commits manslaughter. They run to the city of refuge. They have to stay there. The only time they can leave and be free of the need to stay in the city of refuge. Anybody remember? When the high priest at that time dies. When the high priest in that time died, that person was now free to leave the city of refuge and that murder was clear. Are you getting it yet? We have a high priest that also died, but he went even farther because it's not just manslaughter. It's not just unintentional murder that he's a city of refuge for. All of your sin, all of the ways that you've committed sins that lead to death. Our high priest died once and for all. He took it behind the veil. There's no need to run to a city of refuge anymore. Christ is your city of refuge. Man, I'm trying to tell you something. There's a crimson thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Man, you're reading all this weird stuff in the Hebrew scriptures. You're trying to do your yearly Bible plan. Your number's like, oh my gosh, what is this talking about? I promise you, man. Don't you think God knew? When he, why? Why can the guy go free from the city of refuge when the high priest dies? Why not with some other indicator? I don't know, because he was foreshadowing the gospel. And he was trying to show us one more way just how incredibly powerful he is. And he was going to get done exactly what he said he was going to get done. Amen. Come on. And because of that, because of God's faithfulness, because of Christ, we have an anchor for the soul, man. I could have preached the entire time on all the ways to be an anchor for a soul, but I can't. So think about it this week because it's awesome. He went behind the veil, man. That veil that used to separate mankind from God's presence. He went, he went behind there and the veil's no more. We can come right to him. This is all a hope worth holding on to. This is all something worth being thankful for. And, uh, and Jesus is now our high priest forever. And I'm very, very thankful. Will you pray with me?
Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this second half of Hebrews 6. Thank you for all that's here. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that uh, you will lead people back into these scriptures to discover even more treasure that is there. There's no way uh, in this amount of time we could have touched it all. We could have kicked over every rock and looked at all the beauty that's here. But I thank you for what we could. I thank you for what we got to look at. I thank you for this great truth that your big promise was that you were going to create a family for yourself and it was going to be by faith and that you did it. You've done it. You're doing it. And we're a part of it right now, that that promise is still being fulfilled, that people are still coming to faith in you, that people are still being rescued from slavery to sin and the death that it brings, that people today, right now, you are still calling them to yourself. You are still fulfilling your promise. Thank you for making us children of Abraham by faith. Thank you for making us your children by faith. Lord, help us to not only walk with faith, but also patience. Help us to have those things together in proper proportion and in the right time throughout whatever it is we're navigating. We need them both, and we need the help of your Spirit to walk in those. Lord, thank you for all you showed us today. Please help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers. May we walk in the freedom and encouragement that you've provided for us today. We love you, but only because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.